Our guest on this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is Dr. Balihar Sanghera, who is the Director of Graduate Studies and Senior Lecturer on Sociology at the University of Kent's School of Social Policy. One of his research interests is geopolitics and competing economic imaginaries in Central Asia, which will be the theme of our discussion. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Sanghera. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't we set the context with your publication, a piece you wrote on open democracy a few years ago on Kyrgyzstan, where you describe it as an economic dystopia. And I kind of feel this is endemic of the post-Soviet states as well in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, and other neighboring countries. And so can you describe a bit about Kyrgyzstan's economic dystopia, and then perhaps how what are some things it can do to extricate itself from the plutocracy that that that, that uh, influences it? Great, yes. Well, that's a, that's a great question to start off with. Uh, I suppose we first have to understand what we mean by uh, dystopia. And for me, how I'm using it is to suggest why and how people are are facing uh, suffering, harm, lack of well-being, damage to the environment, social fragmentation. So, so you get the sense that that all these negative things are happening to a country. And so, so for me, that's how I understand the term dystopia. And this is obviously a far cry from the initial expectation when uh, Kyrgyzstan embarked on market reforms. Because, you know, it was held to be a utopic vision, a change from the past, uh, the the Soviet. And this would be heralding in a new time, a new new era of well-being, of flourishing, of uh, economic uh, liberalisation, etc. But what we've seen is with these market reforms is, is actually a shift in power, power between people, between those who own and control the resources and those who lack them, but desperately need them. Uh, so, so let me give you an example of this. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of people need credit. Uh, credit helps to uh, turn the wheels of commerce. And clearly, there are bankers, microcredit finance I- I- institutions uh, that control money. And uh, so they are the lenders. And you're on, the other, on the other side, you've got the borrowers who just don't have enough and and uh, desperately need loans in order to make ends meet, to pay for emergencies, etc. So what we've seen in 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 Kyrgyzstan, but also in other uh, post-Soviet states in, in Central Asia, is 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 is, is the emergence of the power of the financial class, the bankers, the uh, microfinancial institutions, who are able to uh, charge high interest rates on the loans. That they give out. Uh, Kyrgyzstan uh, a couple of years ago had one of the highest uh, interest rates in the world, and that in real terms, uh, so taking into account uh, inflation. And this high interest rate has uh, resulted uh, uh, resulted in many uh, negative social outcomes. In order to pay back the loans, the high interest payments, many households had to migrate to the city or moving from their rural areas to the to the urban. Many also left to go to Russia, uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, so about 10%, uh, 10 to 50% of the population are, are migrants in uh, one form or another. This has resulted in uh, depopulation of the rural areas. It has also resulted in broken homes uh, because usually 
the more able-bodied people from the household are able to leave, uh, leaving, uh, uh, you know, usually the elderly to look after the children of, of the parents who have migrated. And it's also resulted in, in several cases in, 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 in poor rural areas to suicide. And, and this is all, in one way or another, connected to the, uh, the relationship between the lenders and the buyers, in which the lenders are able to charge high interest rates because they have a monopoly power. Uh, they can do what they want to do. Uh, they can justify their actions in terms of property rights. And, uh, and, and the borrowers have no choice. So what we've seen is this liberalization of finance, the privatization of the banking sector. All these sounds very nice. But when you look at it on the ground and how it's been practiced, you see suffering, harm, injustice. This is what I mean by economic dystopia. And in your article, you mentioned the interest rates in some cases went from you know up to 40 or 50 percent. And another point that you mentioned that was interesting regarding housing and real estate where this elite class, plutocracy, oligarchy, whatever you want to call it, they would, you know, purchase a lot of luxury apartments and use them to clean money. And, you know, myself living in Kazakhstan, I've I've been considering investing either in real estate or other areas. And I've heard stories uh, in Astana, uh, an apartment, you know, they're, they're building like crazy all over the place in Kazakhstan. And, and in Astana, someone told me that, you know, there were, just like one, two, three, four entire floors of apartments or flats were purchased by one person, you know, and that attests to, to what your article says, where these people buy um, the real estate and they, they launder or clear, clean their money in this way uh, or preserve the, their, their money in that way. It's safer than keeping it in the bank, I guess, because perhaps the, the government could could take it out of the bank and then your another point you make about economic rents and perhaps you can explain this better you know i might describe it as money that would be useful for the economy but is otherwise stolen by this elite class uh, and it further and kind of impoverishes the economy and population because it doesn't really go into production or consumption it just kind of gets out of the economy and, and sits there yeah, no, you know, all those uh, points are, are are valid and uh, and uh, well and well articulated. There's there is something about about the nature of how these very rich individuals, the ultra rich, uh, the the elite class, the the plutocracy, or what we would call in economics and political economy, we call the rentier class. Why do we call them the rentier class? It's because they're able to make their income by extracting rent. And how are they able to extract rent? Through ownership and control of assets. That's how they extract rent, because they control things that other people desperately need and uh, and other people are, are willing to pay high price in order to, to, to acquire uh, those resources. Uh, so like, for example, the, the, the interest rates. Uh, and also, likewise, with high property prices uh, or paying um, high rent on uh, on accommodation. And what is interesting, I mean, uh, about this is that how this this class of people, this plutocracy, this rentier class, are able to uh, earn their income by doing nothing. They don't do anything. That's how I mean. They get 
uh, something for nothing. They're able to, they don't contribute to the economy in, in any meaningful way. They're not like teachers or, uh, or, or, or factory workers or retail assistants providing a service. They mainly get their income because they have rights to those properties. And other people are willing to, to, to pay high prices for them. But the income itself is generated by other people. They have to do the hard work to uh, uh, pay uh, uh, for the high rent or to pay for the high interest rates. So the other part of this economic dystopia, as well as the, the suffering and the harm that's created, is the unfairness, the injustice of the system, in that there's this one powerful group of people who are able to uh, earn income without contributing to the economy in any meaningful way other than by just owning property. Uh, ownership doesn't produce income. Uh, ownership just gives you the right to that stream of income. But it's through labour. It's through uh, people's effort that income is generated. The owners of, of these assets, whether they be the bankers, whether they be the landlords, uh, landowning class, uh, the, the rich people who own apartments, they're able to generate income, not through producing things, as in capitalism, but by just buying and selling existing assets. So the example that you gave about, uh, uh, about people buying multiple apartments, they do so because they know they can sit on, a, on an empty apartment and in a, in a couple of years' time, they will sell it and they will get capital gains out of it. Uh, they haven't done anything. They haven't contributed in any meaningful way in, in getting their income. They just bought and sold an existing asset. That's not contribution. That's just being uh, uh, being parasitic on other people's labor. And some of the solutions you mentioned in your article, I like how you called it the property politics nexus. Uh, you know, you, you suggest anti-monopoly legislation, uh, nationalizing some quasi-monopolies uh, and so on. But... I'd like to move on now a bit to the to the new great game, whatever you want to call it, between USA, uh, China, and Russia for Central Asia. I kind of feel for the U.S., it's been an area that it, it has neglected for a while because it has been occupied in other parts of the world. And why don't we go one by one, look at the U.S. Um, in Central Asia, Russia's interests, uh, and then China's, and, and then bring it all together. You've written and the effects of neoliberalism and the Washington consensus in Central Asia, which is working to privatize industries, open markets. And in Kazakhstan, we're kind of just now start really starting to see that happen. Um, they In Astana, just a few months ago, they opened their second stock market, the Astana International Financial Center, in a, in a hope to bring in foreign direct investment and they're privatizing much of their industry or trying to, which includes banking and telecommunications and aviation. And so what has been the legacy of the Washington consensus in Central Asia from the U.S. Uh, perspective? Oh, yeah, great, uh, uh, great question. And uh, let me answer that by in, in two parts. I think the lasting legacy uh, has been the rewriting of property rights. So uh, getting away from the collective communal rights that existed to individualizing them, to making them private. 
And that's important for capitalism. That's important for the rentier class. Because remember earlier I was saying how the rentier class, the plutocracy class, uh, are able to generate their income through ownership and control of assets. Well, that, that, that can only happen if they have ownership, private property rights to those assets. So the rewriting of the property rights has been a, a, a key part of their strategy. And the Washington Consensus is very much about trying to uh, uh, make uh, the market economy work in which uh, individuals have uh, property rights. But of course, these are not just merely any individuals. These are invariably the very rich individuals who have much of the um, monopoly control over valuable, scarce assets like oil fields, gold mines, and also, of course, money. Rewriting of the property class of the property rights has been uh, underpinned by the juridical system, uh, the courts, the judges, the lawyers, who and the international courts, the tribunal courts, who all acknowledge the importance of property rights and uh, uh, seek to ensure that the state or, or any group of people uh, cannot uh, take away existing property rights on the basis of social justice, for instance. When you have, so when you had the breakup of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, the rewriting of the uh, uh, property and landlords were, were a key part of the Washington Consensus. Uh, USIAD, uh, international development agencies, the World Bank, uh, the, the international monetary system, uh, and many others played a, a key part in trying to ensure that the property rights system was that which was aligned with capitalism, effectively. So, 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 so that's been one a key legacy, and and that will remain forever, I think, uh, unless the you know there's some sort of social revolution to bring about a change of uh, of, of of property rights towards a more uh, collective, nationalised uh, rights, which which is one of the ways in which you would control plutocracy, for instance. I think the other legacy uh, of the Washington Consensus is the establishment of unequal relationships between people in the economy. Uh, so what do we mean by this? The economy isn't just about producing things. Uh, the economy consists of uh, social relationships between people. And this social relationships is, is, is one of uh, inequality uh, under, under uh, the influence of Washington Consensus. So let me give you some couple of, a couple of, of, of examples of this. So when we think about employer-employee relationship, uh, one of the things that the Washington Consensus has been involved uh, was, was, was instrumental was in dismantling workers' rights, uh, the, uh, the, the collapse of the trade union movement uh, in the post-Soviet uh, space. Um, I've already spoken about the uh, lender-borrower relationship in which uh, the, the the rights uh, of the lenders is prioritized over that of the of the borrowers. Another one would be uh, the relationship between donors and recipients. I mean, uh, one of the things about this post-service space is the influence of international NGOs. And in this relationship is the international donors that are able to shape the agenda for various causes. And the recipients, the uh, local organizations on the ground in Central Asia are merely 
just vehicles for donors' interests. Another one would be the relationship between the state and the citizens. And we've seen the part of the Washington consensus has been the the decline, the dismantling of the uh, welfare state. So I think when we think about the Washington consensus, it's important to see it in terms of how social relationships between people have become uneven, unequal, and how this has resulted in the strong taking advantage of the weak and in ways in which has resulted in uh, the marginalised poorer groups lacking rights and not being able to have the means to uh, flourish. And we saw just a few weeks ago, Turkmenistan announced that they will stop subsidizing the essential aspects of life, you know, electricity, water, um, and certain foodstuffs. And when I was living in Mexico, it was actually quite nice that the government was subsidizing electricity uh, and water. My electricity bill in Mexico was literally only five U.S. dollars a month, something like that, and the same for the water bill. So that allowed me, as a, as a citizen, as uh, to save a lot of my my income and, and uh, you know, have a better standard of of living. And moving on to Russia's uh, interests in Central Asia. Russia's presence is probably in Central Asia is, is, is the biggest because of the centuries of uh, Russian imperialism. A lot of the Central Asian countries speak Russian. Kazakhstan is very interesting where you have about a 20-30% Russian ethnic population and everyone here, spe- are, they're bilingual, they speak Russian and, and Kazakh. And, and I believe it was in 1994 that the Kazakh president, uh, Nursultan Nazarbayev, proposed the Eurasian Economic Union, which was then largely made material by the actions of Russia and President Putin, um, they seem to have based it on the EU model. And one of my questions is, you know, is it now essential to form an economic and political structure akin to the EU to compete in the globalized world? Um, And as well, you know, they've proposed a Eurasian common currency, which seems a long way off. So what can you say about Russia in Central Asia, as well as this Eurasian project and how it has been faring? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose it's important to say the uh, Eurasia Economic Union was uh, designed to deal with Russia's economic problem. Um, um, And it's it's not necessarily uh, one in which it's about the collective interest of the Eurasian countries. Um, I think even though uh, Nazarbayev articulated the uh, union, um, it it only really took off once it became apparent that it was in the interest of Russia's economy to have something like this. Um, um, and, And why is it in the interest of Russia to have something like a regional integration, uh, partly because of its uh, experiment with neoliberalism. Um, what happened was that uh, uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, uh, you had uh, 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 the economy open up, uh, you had uh, crony capitalism, uh, privatization, 
um, in which the uh, the rich were able to acquire valuable assets and make their income from that. Um, and in response to that, in response to both neoliberalism and globalization, the Russian economy just couldn't reproduce. It, uh, it, it, was, it was floundering. Uh, the 1998 uh, uh, crash uh, was, was, was an example of that. Um, so it was very much uh, the Eurasian Union was, was then really de- was designed to kind of think about what kind of integration could be in place that would be to the advantage of the Russian, the Russian side. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably the most important thing uh, about the uh, the model. Um, and part of that model is to counter the hegemonic power of the dollar, um, the dominance of the dollar uh, in the region, in the Eurasian Union. Um, you know, much of the economy, uh, when I was in Russia and in uh, Kyrgyzstan in the uh, early 2000s, um, a lot of people would use the dollar as their main currency. Um, and this provided uh, the United States with un- unparalleled advantage. Uh, it, it, it gives the, uh, the uh, United States uh, the ability to operate trade and uh, and and budget deficits um, without having to control them, without having to cut back on their spending, and of course, much of their spending uh, tends to be on military uh, on military sector, uh, giving them unequal advantage, giving them uh, uh, advantage over Russia. Um, so, part of the Eurasian Union is to weaken the influence, I think, of the. Uh, of the uh, uh, the dollar hegemony, uh, and to then buy uh, and in and in that respect to enhance the power of the ruble, uh, and we've seen that um, the one the one of the data that I've seen is the the extent to which dollar is used in the Eurasian Union has fallen from thirty five percent to nineteen percent over the course uh, of five years when the uh, Eurasian Union started. Um, so there have been attempts to weaken the, the dollar um, uh, by using uh, other currencies and in doing so to weaken the Washington consensus, to weaken the uh, United States uh, uh, and thereby giving other economies in the region the chance to, to compete, in particular China and, um, and, and Russia. Do I see uh, the the uh, the ruble competing in, at the same level as uh, the dollar? Uh, maybe in Eurasia, yes, but at the global level, no. Um, U.S. The, the U.S. dollar has a considerable advantage in many other regions around the world: uh, Latin America, Africa, South Asia. Um, so, so I can't. So I don't really see the Eurasian Union undermining the hegemonic power of the dollar. Um, but I do see the uh, Euro, the Eurasian Union deepening ties uh, between the 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 member states 
uh, to the advantage of Russia. Uh, and uh, the tariff walls that have been built around Eurasia uh, Union uh, has been to the advantage of the Russian industry. It would be interesting, just a thought experiment at some future date in Central Asia where we might see um, the competing currencies of the petrodollar, the petro yuan, and the Eurasian common currency. And I'd agree with you as well that the ruble probably beyond the region would not would not become much uh, more influential or powerful. And that brings us to China's famous Belt and Road Initiative. It's a very interesting idea that on the surface seems to be win-win for all. China has problems such as its saturated domestic market, and so I guess it can utilize the Belt and Road to export some of its uh, domestic industry like it has with uh, steel and other industries into new neighboring countries and new markets. Uh, it seems um, to have the biggest potential in terms of influence in Central Asia, despite critics saying that it won't be able to deliver and that it's also a form of debt trap diplomacy, perhaps mimicking uh, what the IMF and World Bank have been doing for decades, where they've been handing out loans and debt to foreign countries that were not able to pay them back, and then the IMF and World Bank taking possession of the real assets or, or collateral. We've interviewed previously the, well, not on this podcast, but on my previous channel, um, John Perkins, the economic hitman, who testified to that was his job trying to convince foreign leaders to accept these these debts. And so now it seems like some are saying China is doing that. How would you assess the geopo geopolitical and economic significance of the Belt and Road in Central Asia? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I think you're right. Uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is a is, is, is an extremely powerful uh, and imaginary in the region. Um, and work that I'm doing with Dr. Almira Satabaldeva is very much looking at the different competing imaginaries in the region, you know, the, whether it be the, the Belt and Road imaginary or the, uh, the Eurasian Union imaginary or the Washington Consensus imaginary. And, um, and clearly, you know, the Belt and Road is the, the new kid on the block, as it were. Um, I suppose the question is, why did it occur? Um, we have to remember again uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is not necessarily for the benefit of, of those countries. It's, it's again designed to help uh, uh, a particular problem uh, 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 facing the designer, and in this case, it's China. What was the problem? The, pro the problem of, uh, of crisis of overaccumulation uh, arising uh, over several several decades of uh, overdevelopment of the coastal regions in China to the neglect of the Western uh, regions. Um, so in many ways, the Belt and Road Initiative is about rebalancing the Chinese economy. Um, so, uh, so moving the, the, some of the capital from the coastal areas to the West, uh, and hence why you then have uh, Central Asia as being an important uh, uh, player in this, um, because of its connection with the Hijon region, for instance, and uh, Pakistan and India. Uh, clearly, part of this uh, Belt and Road Initiative is 
to to make capital earnest money. It's to reproduce capital. Um, it's to generate profit, which otherwise would become devalued, would become devalorized if it remained in China. Um, with each of these imaginaries, I think, and especially with, with the um, Belt and Road Initiative, they are all capitalist uh, models. They're not designed to be in any way redistributing wealth from the north to the south or anything like that. They're very much about trying to ensure that capital gets reproduced uh, for the benefit of the uh, major, major powers. Um, so in that light, I kind of think that uh, I would I would certainly differ with your with your assessment. I think uh, I would say that there's little benefit for Central Asia. The countries that are that will benefit are those that have the most resources. Uh, you know, countries like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, possibly uh, Uzbekistan. But the minor countries, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, uh, that have very little, um, are, are not likely to win in this uh, model that's been proposed by, by by China, other than just in terms of uh, transit routes um, from the Chinese factories to mature markets in Europe or to emerging markets in uh, the Middle East. Um, so one of the connections, for example, that there's a new uh, a new railroad that's been proposed, uh, it's probably been approved now, that would run from uh, uh, Western China through uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan and then to Uzbekistan, through Pakistan and then to Iran. Um, and the purpose of this is to make the flow of capital work more efficiently is to shorten the, uh, the the travel time of goods. Um, and that's important for the reproduction of capital to ensure the valorization of capital. So in that so in that respect, it's uh, it, it really uh, you know the benefits that Central Asian economies will, will have will depend very much how they are linked up with capital with China. And other than the region being seen as trade routes for factory goods passing through uh, these regions, or just merely acquisitions of much-needed resources for Chinese economic security, like oil and gas from Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, I see very little benefit uh, for, for these countries. And this brings me to my final question. I have visited China, Russia. I've lived in Mongolia. I currently reside in Kazakhstan. Um, my take is I, I still do see this new great game between China, Russia, and the U.S. on more or less an even playing field and find it hard to place either of the three at a clear advantage. However, your assessment also does have weight to it and make sense where you say the U.S. at the moment has the upper hand. One advantage you say is their ability to sabotage Chinese and Russian plans. You give, yeah. the, you give the example of Ukraine, which I would say was essentially a coup d'etat, as well as the U.S. sanctions against Russia, which are not only hurting Russia, but 
uh, affecting the Kazakh currency, the tenge, which is tied to the, in some ways, to the Russian ruble. And the tenge has been getting knocked around uh, recently. And so my Kazakh salary is affected by the interference of my own American, <laughs> American government <laughs> all the way on this part of the world. Um, so, in, and it also in uh, earlier this year, both the Kazakh and Uzbek presidents were invited by President Trump to the White House um, and they sought beneficial relations. So I think there's a lot there that was said just by their visit. Um, so what is your take on who is winning the new great game for Central Asia in terms of economic and geopolitical influence uh, or will all three powers keep each other in check? Oh, great, uh, great question. Uh, and, and, and I think you're right to point out uh, the dominance of the United States and the Western powers, I think, uh, for all those reasons. Uh, and, and if I can just also include partly because the international financial institutions like the, inter, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, uh, they, they all are, they all are one way or another connected to United States. Uh, we know the uh, the Treasury, the US Treasury sits on the board of IMF and World Bank. They can veto any plans that don't meet uh, their interest. Um, we also know that uh, uh, you know IMF and the World Bank have tried to sabotage any proposals for a petro yuan currency or the dominant or for the for in any way the the U.S. dollar to not to become a, a to continue its uh, its role as the uh, 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 the world currency. Um, so uh, even though IMF and World Bank are, are you know purport to be neutral uh, international um, uh, agencies, they they're far from that. Uh, they very much do the bidding of the United States. Um, so, uh, so I think the the uh, the financial infrastructure, uh, the international financial infrastructure, is very much in favor of United States. And I think in 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 that respect, Russia and China are going to struggle to put forward uh, uh, an alternative financial uh, infrastructure. They're trying to do that, um, but they're a long way from that, and 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 and, and that will take a while. Um, and I suppose, I suppose for me, um, who's winning the new great game? I suppose the game is still one of capitalism. They're all playing the game of capitalism. Capitalism. They may have different ideas about the nature of capitalism, but they're all playing that game. Uh, they're not offering anything alternative uh, to capitalism. Um, you know, I wish you know Russia and China would put forward a counter. A capitalist uh, project, but they're not. Uh, the Eurasian Union, the Belt and Road Initiative, they are just a version of of, of the Washington Consensus capitalist uh, uh, a project. Maybe the latter two are not as uh, uh, sorry. The Eurasian Union and the uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, they probably don't place as much emphasis on finance as the Washington Consensus. Uh, so, so they place more emphasis on production um, and and investment and into, into infrastructure, but they all still do the same thing, which is about valorization of capital and the reproduction of capital in the global powers. So I think 
I think whoever is going to be the winners is going to be capitalists anyway. Who are the losers? It's the everyday people. Uh, it's, and at the end of the day, I think one of the major losers is the environment. Uh, the environment is the uh, will not gain from this relentless drive for growth that all the major powers are pursuing. Uh, it's not sustainable, the level of growth that Russia, China and the United States uh, wish to have. Um, uh, you know, reports from the United Nations suggest that we need to take action to make the world sustainable uh, in, over the next 12 years. I just don't see anyone even playing that, uh, undertaking those kinds of actions. So I'm very pessimistic uh, about the nature of the game. Uh, as I said the game is very much a capitalist game. And uh, I think the losers are us, the people, the people without assets, uh, people without monopoly power of key valuable resources, and the planet, uh, because the, the, the key winners are the are the the plutocrats, um, whether in power or outside of the uh, uh, the uh, White House, but still able to have lobbying power. That's a great uh, place to to end it. And do you have any final thought you'd like to make? Uh, perhaps also mention any research you, you're working on going forward, and as well how people can best follow the work that you do. Oh, great! Yes, thanks. Um, well, um, I mean, my uh, my partner and I, Almira uh, Satwadeva, uh, uh, we're currently working on a couple of projects, looking at how the rich and powerful justify uh, their economic relationships. Um, because you know, we sometimes think that power just happens, uh, but no, it needs to be justified. Um, so, what kind of moral reasons, moral justifications, do they use? to uh, depoliticize, normalize unequal relationships. So, we, so we've been working, uh, looking at uh, bankers, financial institutions, uh, the judges, the judiciary, how all these people, uh, all these very powerful people are using moral reasoning as a way to disguise the sense of neutrality, the, the sense of equality, the sense of impartiality, when actually, uh, their economic relationship is one of one which uh, favors them to the harm and 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 suffering of of others. Uh, so so that's the work that that, that we are currently embarking on. Uh, we have a project to uh, write a book, a, a, a monograph, uh, a monograph of this, uh, the political economy in Central Asia, um, which which tries to tie up the importance of the rentier class and. Uh, with morality uh, and to pay particular attention to social inequality. Uh, I think I think one of the things that we have to always be fascinated by uh, and take an interest in is how does the economy work for the people? How are people's well-being harmed or, or nurtured or developed? Um, so at one level, you know, we can think about this in terms of a game between the major powers but we must always be reflexive and always remind ourselves we're talking about people's lives, we're talking about people's social relationships in which you know, people are vulnerable, needy, interdependent, uh, in which the economy, uh, uh, the way the economy is shaped, tends to favor one group over another. 
And I think we always need to be mindful of that. And, and in terms of uh, how people can best follow my work, uh, I would recommend them to go to my University of Kent website. Uh, just Google my name, Baleha Sangera, and uh, you'll be able to see uh, uh, the articles that I'm currently writing on. All right, Dr. Sangera, it's been a pleasure. We thank you for your time. Thank you, and then thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed this chat. Thanks.